Well, hello, everyone. This is Brunch with Brent. I'm joined today by Jim Salter. Jim, uh, thanks for joining me. How, how are you doing? Doing good, Brent. How about you? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. It's such a treat for me to have you on because you and I haven't necessarily had the chance to connect that much, even though we're both doing some pretty cool uh, Jupiter broadcasting content on a regular basis. But um, I wanted to give some people a little bit of a background on some of what you do. So many will know you uh, as a tech reporter at Ars Technica. Uh, Most will know you probably as being co-host of TechSnap with Wes. And you've been doing that for a little while now, haven't you? Uh, I think we're closing in on a year. I'm not sure. I, I did several as a guest before uh, they brought me on, so it, it gets a little hazy. But has that deep kind of thinking always been a part of you, or is it something you've developed out of necessity? I think that's pretty much always been me. I mean, you know, I was the kid that uh, before the internet, you know, would literally just start reading random things out of Encyclopedia Britannica and, you know, going from volume to volume and to see that, to see the other. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I, I want to absorb information and I want to think about, you know, what you can do with it and what it really means and, you know, new things you might be able to do. Understanding a concept deeply allows you to interact it, with it in a way that allows you to be more creative. Uh, I've noticed that certainly because I tend to be quite sort of slow and deep as well uh, when I commit to learning something. Uh, And I've noticed that it allows me to kind of make all these connections that I wouldn't if I didn't give it that time. Um, Do you find that too? Like you're connecting a whole bunch of different ideas is what keeps you deep diving? (laughs) So there's like a really seminal moment in my own personal career progression, right? So, you know, I'm uh, about to turn 48 years old. So obviously there was no internet when I was a kid. Some people had computers at home, but, you know, that wasn't particularly common either. I was kind of lucky that way. And a lot of people didn't necessarily believe yet that computers were ever really going to matter much to most people. As weird as that might seem now. It does. Yeah. But, you know, I had been, I mean, my my hello world was at like age, I don't know, maybe six on a trash 80. So it didn't take me that long to figure out that I thought computers were seriously cool. And, you know, when I discovered that there was a job computer programmer and it paid well, I'm like, well, you know, this is obviously going to be my life. And um, it didn't necessarily work out all that <laughs> cleanly. <laughs> Life never does, right? <laughs> no, it it doesn't. But, you know, one way or another, I assumed for, you know, a good long time that my life is going to be about writing code and programming computers. But um I enlisted in the Navy at uh, age 17. Don't recommend, not a good idea. And I, you know, I I thought that I was going into a real high tech field. I enlisted to be a reactor operator and discovered to my great dismay that, you know, that's not really this amazing high tech thing. Uh, I don't know if you I don't know if you know this, but a nuclear reactor is basically a giant Zippo water. It gets hot and it boils water. (laughs) You run steam turbines with that. The same way you would have it with a coal boiler and a black gang in the late 1800s. You know, they called them black gangs because of all the coal dust and they were literally shoveling chunks of rock into a fire. Yeah. That's what a reactor does. And I don't want to get too deep into my deeply weird Navy career, but like even that didn't end up sticking. And I wound up a uh, whole tech, which basically means like welder with some other stuff thrown in. 
And that didn't actually suit me, but that was my rate and there was no getting around it. So then I end up in a, uh, a repair planning department on a large ship. And they had uh, IBM PCs in there, several of them, that they would plan jobs on. The PCs weren't networked. You know, they were just individual, uh, not connected to any network at all type stuff up on it and be done. And they ended up needing a pretty massive upgrade that they had no idea how to accomplish because the repair manual for the Navy had upgraded. Uh, It went from the repair manual Mark I to the repair manual Mark II. And the folks, the Frank Cable had been provided uh, this program that somebody had written uh, at the behest and, you know, with the money invested of the Navy that would just barely allow you to design a repair job according to the repair manual Mark I. But this thing, I mean, it, it was uh, it was terrible. It was like a fill in the blank kind of a thing. Um, you couldn't copy and paste. Uh, it, you couldn't even non-destructively backspace. It was horrible, and there was absolutely no way to make this limited thing, uh, you know, output a job that was planned according to the repair manual Mark II. So the repair department is flummoxed, like they're starting to get yelled at because their repair jobs aren't compliant with the latest regulation. But they're like, you know, we we can't because our tools only allow us to do, you know, the Mark One stuff. Oh man. And the word gets around as the word you know tends to that you know this this guy uh, Petty Officer Salter, he's real good with computer. And so at some point, the, without, you know, no, no longer knowing what the hell else to do, the, these folks ask me, they're like, so if we asked you to, could, could you write a program like this one that would allow us to, you know, design these jobs in accordance with the Premier Mark II? And I took a very careful look at it, and I thought for a day about my answer, and I told them the next day, I can, but I shouldn't. Here's what we should do instead. And I got them on board with a plan instead to use the uh, MS-DOS version of WordPerfect. I think it was 5.1. And I said, you know, look, we can design these jobs in WordPerfect. You have all the modern features of writing a document. You do it basically free form, but you adhere to what you're supposed to do. And I said, you know, then further, we uh, we have a local network file server that everybody's connected to. And we have two drives that everybody can access. We have a uh, we have a working drive that everybody can read and write to, and then we have an approved job drive. So every time a job has been done being designed and it's been approved and it's ready to go, then the shop supervisor copies that over to the approved drive that everybody can read, but nobody but the supervisor is able to write to. And they know I can copy an old job out of that, know that everything in that is you know completely kosher, and I can edit that and adapt it to a new job that's similar. This basically tripled shop throughput. Um, it, it allowed them to get jobs done far quicker, you know, the design phase, than they had been able to do with the old system, as well as, you know, do it in accordance with the repair manual Mark One. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, after the dust had settled and I had, you know, designed this network with, no kidding, you know, coax in between the machines, you know, old 10-base T thin net, all this kind of thing. And we, you know, we'd had a month or two and... um I saw how well everything was working. Anyway, I remember very specifically thinking to myself, this, this is how you get things done. You don't just sit down and write a program anytime there's something you want to do. You need to have an awareness of what software is out there already and what the actual best way to deal with your real workflow is. 
And it's not usually going to be writing code from scratch. So that was basically the day that I knew, no, my ideal job was not computer programmer. It was a sad man. That also sounds like the beginnings of, because uh, I know you're a big open source fan, and it sounds to me like just the way you approached that particular problem took some of those ideas in there. I don't know if you knew open source at that time, but it sounds to me like it was like, okay, well, some of these tools already exist. Why are we trying to rewrite them? Maybe we can just implement them in a different way that solves our problems in the present and also in the future. It's definitely an adjacent thought process, but I, I was not aware of open source then. Um, open source existed, but not very many people really had it on their radar at this point. This would have been, I want to say, like 1992, maybe 1993. It was definitely not 94. Yeah, right. So I, I wasn't aware of open source I, you know, I, I was familiar with the older, like, you know, there were there were programs that were in the public domain or, uh, you know, then later on there was shareware. Open source hadn't reared its head to me personally yet. I do know that, you know, when a few years later I did discover open source uh, when I was a civilian again in the mid to late 90s, um, very rapidly I was like, this is this is important. This really means something because the difference between, you know, I I have to go get approval from a boss to get, say, Photoshop or Microsoft Office or whatever, not only for myself, but for any other people that, you know, I want to enable to do something, you know, as a computer person. Well, that's frequently a lot harder than teaching the people or enabling them or getting the thing done, right? That's that's why you have so many shadow IT departments where people just kind of surreptitiously do whatever. But I'm like, you know, when you've got a program, like, you know, say, compare GIMP to Photoshop, you know, there are things that Photoshop does considerably better than GIMP, but GIMP is really important even when it's not as good as Photoshop because it's accessible to everybody. And when you can do the same thing in both programs and you know how to do the same thing in both programs, that knowledge in GIMP is really important because you can take it with you anywhere and you can use it anywhere. You don't have to get somebody else's approval to use it. You don't have to get somebody else's approval to teach somebody else how to use it. You know, it, it's just like the whole freaking human race has this thing now. And that's amazing. Yeah. And lowering that barrier of entry is so important for like future creativity and future sort of thought processes too in, in, in someone, especially young people, but anybody who's learning something new, right? Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I mean, there are other awesome things about open source, and I bought onto all of those pretty early as well. Uh, you know, once I encountered the concept of, you know, like the the BSDs, and I learned about how, you know, at the time, the largest website in the world, or the most heavily trafficked, you know, ftp.cdrom.com, I was like, you know, this is running on commodity desktop machines, running a free operating system, and it's literally serving more traffic than anything in the world. I'm like, okay, I I need some of that. There must be something here, right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, then when I read, you know, from the other side of the open source camp, uh, Eric S. Raymond's The Cathedral in the Bazaar, um, you know, his arguments about how open source produced better code, you know, because of the greater visibility and, uh, you know, peer review and this and that and the other, I was perfectly willing to believe and buy into all that. And, you know, I, I still do. I, I think it's I think it's very true. I also have the experience 
of having written proprietary code for purpose myself versus whether it's starting out to write open source code or converting, you know, what had been a proprietary project, you know, into something open source and, and, you know, thinking even before anybody else says anything, just to myself realizing people are going to see this crap I wrote. It needs to be professional. It needs to be good. Just it works, you know, with the thing that you do it for that day is not good enough. And, um, I think it's really hard to get that without open source, you know? I mean, you can, you can institute code reviews within a company for proprietary code, of course, but I don't really see how over the course of time, you don't eventually end up having standards slip a little bit and they may not get all the way down to like, well, this is good enough for me. It's the thing I do. And it, you know, doesn't really break off enough to piss me off. Like you can, you can get North of that, but I don't see how you keep from slipping down to the point where you have this little insular community and well, it just needs to be good enough for this little insular community standards. You don't have to be worried that literally anybody in the world can take a look at this thing that you did that granted it works, but they're like, what did you do? I think some of the coolest things that happen with open source is when someone takes a project and uses it in a completely different way than originally intended and yet still a plausible application, right? And like perhaps when you wrote the code, you had a certain intention, but could never imagine its other uses. Uh, and how much of a gift is that? That is a definite gift. Um, you know, that, that's also, again, that's, that's one of those things that leads you to writing higher quality code when you, you really realize people are liable to use this in ways that I didn't intend. It forces you to write a lot more defensively and consider a lot more use cases. And sometimes that consideration can lead you to avoid errors and what would have been a lot of unnecessary rework because you're thinking from the start with like, okay, how do I make this the most broadly functional and not just functional in this one specific use case that I have for it? So what about the challenges then of taking that approach? I would imagine there are some like that sounds like perhaps more work or more intentional work. What would you say are the, are the downsides, if any? I don't think there are downsides. I mean, it, it's, it's quote more work unquote, but you know, that's like saying, yeah, it's, it's more work to do a job right than to do it, you know, crappy and half ass. <laughs> so it's just, it's forcing you to do it right. That's more work than having done it half ass, but you didn't half ass it. So, <laughs> and so take us back to when you are on that ship. Um, like that was clearly a changing moment for you, but how did things progress for you from there? That's kind of a rough story. So, you know, th this was the Navy um, in the early to mid 90s, post tailhook era, and I'm still very young. And to understand some of it, you have to understand a little bit of background on like how the Navy works and specific rates work in the Navy. So I went in as a reactor operator, which the base rate to that is ET electronics technician, right? And the reason that I was no longer a reactor operator, it, it boils down to I pissed off the wrong people. Don't get me wrong. I, I truly meant well, and I was a very earnest person as a young man. Like I wanted to do the right thing as, uh, as a person, as a soldier for the Navy, as a whole, my unit, the whole nine. 
But I wanted to have a little bit more input into that process than you're really supposed to have as, you know, like a 19-year-old enlisted dude. And that didn't fly. And um, I disagreed with some of the things that some of the brass were doing in the, uh, in the, prototype, the, the reactor prototype that um, I was completing my two-year naval nuclear power training uh, pipeline in. And as a result of that, they found a way to get me out of the program, to make a long story short. And I assumed, okay, well, I'm going to go to the fleet as an electronics technician, but that's okay. I'll be out of most of this politics. That will probably suit me better. It'll be electronics. My dad was a broadcast engineer, and I always, you know, like really dug the whole, like, you know, he's over there soldering on circuit boards and whatever. So that's going to be me now. And I had that A school as part of my training. So it's going to be great. It'll be fine. <laughs> but the Navy decided to cross-rate me involuntarily to Holtec, which, like I said, is mostly welder. It's a very, you know, blue-collar thing. And um, advancement in the enlisted Navy is based first and foremost on how well you take written tests. So what do you think? Does the typical welder do a great job taking written examinations? I would imagine that's not their forte. It is not their forte. Um, it was my forte, which is, you know, the majority of the reason why at not quite 20 years old, I was an E5. So that's the rate, that was the rank that I got cross-rated into as a Holtec. And I went to a Holtec A school, you know, which is all of like seven weeks of, you know, learn to weld. And then I'm, you know, unleashed on the fleet as an E5, you know, theoretically Holtec, but uh, a real HT2, you know, Holtec second class, that's E5. A real HT2 typically started welding uh, when they were in high school or junior high school, was already really good at it before they ever joined the Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then because they're not typically good at all at written examinations, they'll end up having to retake the tests and, you know, get more points just for time and service to the point that they probably won't be 30 by the time they hit E5, but they're pushing 30. So now here's me. I literally just had my 20th birthday in a school and, you know, I'm, I'm an HT too. And that does not fly with Holtex. So that's what gets me into the, you know, the shop with all the computers in it, which was Holtex and machinist mates, but there's computers here. That's also why finally getting to answering your, your your real question, you know, how did things go from there? So I did this awesome thing and, you know, made the the, the uh, planning and repair shop way more efficient. How'd that go for me? And the answer is I got absolutely terrible performance evaluations because although I had done this great thing with the computers, that wasn't my job and I wasn't much of a whole tech. Wow. And so do you feel like that is a problem with such hierarchical structures of that sort? Is that if you didn't do the specific thing you were designed to do, even though it was for the greater good, that it's seen as a negative? I think that's a problem that a lot of really capable people have. And, and you know, I, I'm not trying to puff myself up, but a lot of the people who do go on to change the world, they're so frequently are, you know, like college dropouts or whatever. I, I think the reason for that is that really capable people frequently don't fit well in organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, organizations are specifically trying to avoid needing really unusual people because they want to be able to replace personnel as they retire or leave for a different job or whatever. So when you have somebody who's really capable, who shows up, if you're running that organization, 
if you're an exceptional leader, maybe you can figure out something great to do with that person. And you can figure out kind of a transition in and a transition out where you use this exceptional person to do an exceptional thing that lasts and can be carried on, you know, by the people that you can find day in and day out. If you're not an exceptional leader, then one of two things happens. Um, Either that person ends up making those changes anyway, but doing it, you know, outside the scope of the organization and they basically become, I mean, they're kind of a cancer, you know, you ever work someplace where you're like, Oh, you know, you, you got to talk to Joe back in the back. Like he's the only one that knows how to do, you know, half these things. Well, so on the one hand, Joe's probably a really capable person, but on the other hand, he's, he's cancer to that organization. Cause what happens when Joe's out sick or what happens when Joe retires or dies or moves on or whatever, the organization's kind of screwed, right? So you either end up with a Joe and you know, your people don't really know how to get the mission accomplished. Or, you know, if again, you know, you're not the great leader and you don't know what to do with a Joe, Joe just ends up getting fired. You know, you yell at him all the time. You, you piss him off. Um, maybe you fire him, maybe he quits, but you know, it doesn't work. You didn't find a place for Joe in your organization. Cause there's this like inherent mismatch, right? Yeah. One of you is really bad for the other. So moving it back to me, I mentioned, you know, I got uh, the worst eval of my Navy career immediately after tripling the throughput of this shop. Wow. You want to hear about the best eval I got in my Navy career? I could just imagine. I'm going to guess at it. Probably when you just didn't do very much and wasn't very inspired or. Oh, it is so much more colorful than that, Brent. Oh, oh, please give it to me. (laughs) So, uh, you know, fast forward a couple of years and I'm no longer stationed on board Frank Cable. Um, Now I'm on the uh, Charleston Naval Base uh, in the repair division of SIMA, the shore intermediate maintenance activity. I'm still fixing boats, but now I'm doing it from a building rather than another boat. And I end up in their um, automated reports and retrieval system maintenance document collection. <laughs> so the, the acronym doesn't matter. What really matters is what the job of ours Medco was is uh, everybody's using these AT&T 3B2 mini computers. Uh, actually, they're not using the mini computer directly. They've got dumb terminals in every shop. And on the dumb terminal, they have an application that they log in uh, all the, the personnel hours that were worked on these repair jobs for each shop. Right. So uh, maybe you got three E4s and an E5. Uh, Your shop will be budgeted a certain amount of personnel hours, and you document how you spent them, whether it was on this job or that job or the other job or training or they took leave. You you enter all this stuff in. So this goes to Ars Medco, and Ars Medco's job is to analyze this and look for trends, either good or bad, which ultimately usually just turns into an exercise of the higher-ups who direct ours medco tell us look for this particular statistic and we will come down like the hammer of god on anybody that has too high a number on that statistic okay you remember the the cartoon way back in the day bugs bunny with the dam and like he keeps sticking his finger in the hole and then another hole pops open and the water comes out of there yeah (laughs) so i mean this is what goes on right like you know you've got your bad stat of the week so all the shops lie about that bad stat of the week because they've heard which one it is um, and meanwhile, they camouflage, you know, all the evidence of not a whole lot of efficiency going on in something else. So we got all this stuff going on 
uh, the brass doesn't really have much of any genuine idea of how efficient all the shops are, but everybody's doing all this active stuff and rah, 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 I'm doing my part to, you know, make sure everything's efficient. So part of this job uh, was we would have to take these reports that were printed out on, you know, wide format uh, tractor feeds paper, you know, the old school, like alternating green and white rows. Um, all this stuff would be physically printed out from the 3B2. And in order to analyze it, we would then have to type it back in to a different application <laughs> on the same dumb terminal connected to the same 3B2. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, it was fabulous. Um so so you know, we're we're doing this is what it boils down to. Um and you do this at night. Uh it's like a swing shift, you know, after the the normal working hours are done for all the shops, you get all their time for the day and you enter their time in. One night, I'm working with this guy, Petty Officer Baron. He's also a second class and an E5. And uh, he's on his way out of the Navy in theory um on a uh, a medical discharge because his shoulder got hurt. And uh, Baron was one of these sailors who you have to demonstrate to him that he has to do something or there will be bad consequences or he's not going to do it. He's not going to take your word for it. There's going to be bad consequences. You know, you're going to have to go through the whole cycle with this guy. So putting him on swing shift with another junior enlisted person and no other supervision is not the best answer. (laughs) And uh, everybody else has left. It's like five o'clock. People have only been gone for like half an hour. We've got another three, four hours worth of work, you know, for the two of us together to get done before we can be done and go home. And uh, Baron just looks at me and says, well, that's it. I'm done, man. Good luck. I'm out. And I'm like, what? Oh, no. Oh, no, you're not. You you got to do your half of this crap. Um, and uh, so Baron just tries to head for the door, and uh, I have already informed him, yes, I will physically prevent him from leaving. So we get in a knockdown, drag-out fight. Come on. <laughs> this is not a fist fight. Nobody threw a punch, but I will say that I left a dent in the office coffee maker, the exact size and shape of his skull. <laughs> And it finally ended up, uh, I'll admit, he was bigger than than I was, and uh, it ended up with him bending me backwards over a table with one arm behind me in a hammerlock. And as his thumb went down toward my eyeball, I told him, if you touch my eye, you're going to have to kill me. <laughs> and then he let go, and we sat there just like coughing for a few minutes. Like, have you ever really gotten in a hard <laughs> fight for a while? And like, you're just coughing afterward because you've been exerting yourself? Yeah, so it's that. Wow. So I was a little bit, I I was in considerably better shape than he was. So I was like recovered quicker than he was. Um, He's still kind of, you know, breathing heavy and coughing. And he said, all right, well, I'm out of here. And I said, no, you're not. And he's like, what are you talking about? I won the fight. I said, you ready to do it again? (laughs) He's like, man, F you, Salter. (laughs) And so we finish out the night. But, you know, in the course of this like 15 minute, uh, barrage of physically throwing each other around the office we have shredded like half the paperwork you know under the wheels of the rolling chairs like i said i left a clearly skull-shaped dent in the coffee maker um you know and you can imagine the the rest of the damage although we didn't you know break any equipment to the point of unusability but it's very obvious some some crap has gone down the next morning and uh when i roll in at uh you know about 
uh, noon because again, I'm working the swing shift doing this stuff. Uh, the, the chief petty officer who also was my chief on board the Frank cable and gave me the terrible, you know, evaluation there. Oh yeah. Uh, he was like, you know, Salter, what the hell happened in here last night? And I'm like, Oh man. Cause you know, there, there was a time, uh, that just brawls between sailors in the Navy were openly to be expected, but that time was in the Vietnam era. It was not post tail hook. And I'm just like, you know, once I tell Chief Milney this, it can't be untold. So I look at him and I maintain eye contact for a second. I say, are you sure you want me to answer that question, Chief? And uh, he is just spitting mad. He's like, you know, you're you're effing D and blah, blah. And right. I want you to answer that question, Salter. And I said, I need to close the door, Chief. He said, all right, everybody out. And a couple other people that were in there, you know, eagerly anticipating, they they file out disappointedly. And I go close the door and I sit back down and I, I explain the whole thing to him. I tell him, you know, everything that went on. And uh, he says, all right. I said, so am I okay, chief? And he said, yep, you're fine. Good job. Glad you made him do his work. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. So that eval period... I got a 4 4-0 is a perfect eval in the Navy. I got 4-0 across the board, including in leadership, which is a, a, <laughs> a stat that is not normally measured for an E5. Like, that's an optional, and it's not normally actually evaluated until, you know, you hit E6. Yeah, I got 4-0 across the board, including leadership, for bashing Baron's head into the coffee maker and leaving a dent. Oh, that is great. I I I thought maybe this story was going to go into some kind of like efficiency uh, section, but clearly you were uh, enforcing <laughs> your own dismay with. Uh, apparently, what I was actually doing is finally I was fitting into the organization. Oh, interesting. And when did you realize that? Like for yourself, when did you say, "Oh shit, now I actually I'm one of them." I don't know if I ever articulated it before right now, honestly, but you know, like I've, I've had, uh, I've had the thoughts before about how, you know, an inordinately capable person in an organization can easily end up becoming a cancer to the organization and how, you know, I have been cancer to organizations in the past myself. And so, you know, just saying all those things to you at the same time, it's like, it's kind of obvious. Well, you all, okay. Yeah. It was, it's, it's a funny story. And that's what got me the four O evals. But it also fits, you know, into the whole context we've been talking about. I finally fit into the organization and did it really well. The organization needed me to make this recalcitrant petty officer do his job, and I did that. And, you know, there you go. Here's your 4-0. Interesting. I did notice earlier today, uh, and this will be a slight aside, was totally connected. I ran to a word twice this morning uh, and then I was like, okay, I got to go research what the heck this word means. And so I was looking at um, a brain pickings article about Martin, Martin Luther King and uh, the word in specific was gadfly. <laughs> and I ran into that word again in your Twitter description. And I was like, all right, I got to go look this up because it wasn't a term I had run into. Uh, can you give us a quick, like what a gadfly is and I think that might just tie into this story a little bit. A gadfly is just, it's a constant irritant that you just can't quite get to leave you alone. That just keeps causing problems and you swat at it and swat at it. But, you know, it's still there, still buzzing in your ear. Yeah. So I, I, I was doing a deep dive on this word because it ended up 
really speaking to me. And um, I grabbed that it actually, the first mention of it in that context was from Socrates. And he said, you know, just to paraphrase, stinging people into fury in service of the truth. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that is interesting. And when you were telling this story, I was thinking about that, thinking, yep, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's me. At least I feel like we need people who are pushing some buttons and asking the hard questions and doing the deep dives where other people maybe aren't, aren't willing to. I mean, the positive way to look at being a gadfly is, uh, you know, it's contextual. It's you need one when you have a negative complacency that needs to be disturbed. And that's something that, uh, you know, like it or not, I'm really well suited to. <laughs> I am that guy that comes into the like, oh, well, you know, everything's normal and this is fine, but it's not fine and just won't leave you alone about like, no, no, no. Actually pick your head up and look around you. This is not good. There are better ways or at the very least, this is not good and we need to think about it. I, I'm I'm that guy. Whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, I am that guy. So I might as well find, you know, positive ways to do it. I, I feel like having people like you is definitely a good tool uh, in keeping everybody in check. Those people looking and looking over our shoulders uh, to keep us doing the good work and not the bad work. Uh, so thank you from the community <laughs> for doing that kind of stuff. You don't always get thanks for being the irritating fly buzzing, but uh, <laughs> you're welcome and thank you. And that's kind of what's captured in in that word, right? Is like you're an irritation, but with the greater good in mind. And that's kind of a tough position to play because you're the bad guy and the good guy all at once, right? Yeah, it is. Does that ever put you down? <laughs> Well, to, to, to answer a different question that you didn't actually ask, um, you know, gadfly is one of those things that for me, it feels comfortable to call myself that because I feel like there is some humility in it. You know, like you're not saying, oh, you know, I'm this awesome person. I'm this great leader. You know, I'm this uh, influencer. You're just, you know, I'm the irritating fly that's buzzing around in your ear. I feel like it's okay to say that about yourself. And then you kind of let everybody else judge like, okay, well, you know, is this a good irritant or a bad irritant? <laughs> <laughs> that distinction is actually important. <laughs> Maybe it's um, productive irritant. So, like, you can strive to be a productive irritant, but I think it, it's fair to say I'm an irritant. And, and it's, it's certainly fair to say I strive to be productive, but you let everybody else judge that. You don't, you don't get to make that call about yourself. I mean, if you do... That's how you become the person in need of a gadfly yourself, right? Because you've sunken into that unproductive complacency of just like, oh, you know, I'm awesome. There is this trope about, uh, you know, Roman emperor supposedly had somebody on hand, like at all times beside them to just occasionally throughout the day, lean over and murmur into their ear, you too are mortal, you will die. Uh, you know, to keep them grounded in the idea that, you know, I am just a person. I'm I'm not a god, you know, here at the head of the Roman Empire. We all need A, that, and B, to do what we can ourselves to avoid really obviously needing that. Yeah, it, it sounds to me like there's a little bit of stoic philosophy in there that you just threw in there. It's like, we 
all have faults and all need to be reminded of that and that we're mortal, right? And uh, I guess sometimes it's important to remember that our time here is pretty short and we should try to do the the best possible things we can with that time or those efforts, even if it's a bit challenging. And also, you know, that we're we're all part of a society. If you want to talk, you know, philosophy, then now we're getting into John Donne. But yeah, no, no person is an island. Uh, we are all part of a greater society and we need to fit into it and we need to be good and be productive with and for one another as well as for ourselves. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, doesn't the Navy fit into that too? You know, there's this interconnected web of people that you don't get to choose those people. Well, I suppose the Navy does. But true of our greater society too, right? Like we all have to find a way to create an excellent environment that we all want to be a part of. It's it's so easy to veer into uncomfortable, you know, political directions. But how many people do you know who aren't Wall Street stockbrokers who just wax enthusiastic about how lucky we are to have like Wall Street, you know, stock players among us who are just flinging around, you know, these stocks several times a day and, you know, pocketing changes in value as they move them around. Um, you know, I hear arguments about, you know, technically why that supposedly creates fluidity that, you know, assists business in happening, which all sound kind of dubious, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what are you really doing for the world? And I feel like if you don't have a clear and cogent answer as to what your career is doing positive for the world. And it doesn't have to be like amazing, right? I mean, if you're working at a fast food place and you're making sandwiches, you are accomplishing a real good for the world. You know, I mean, you're a necessary part in a system that freaking feeds people. That's great. You go home and you hold your head high. But, you know, if you're making a ton of money, but you're having a lot of trouble putting your finger on like, okay, you know, what's the thing I do that makes people's lives better? What's the value you're providing? Yeah. What's the value you're providing? Like if you can't really answer that solidly, if you can't feel it in your bones, uh, I don't know how to wrap that up exactly other than, you know, that's, it's not, it's not good. So it sounds pretty important to stop every once in a while and take a look at what you're doing and measure whether the value you're providing is the kind of value you want to be injecting into the world. Absolutely. For you, like some of your writing that you're doing, because you're you're clearly doing some for Ars Technica, and I think in a few other places, um, what would you say is like the main motivator then for that kind of writing? What are you trying to achieve with it? That literally just came up in a comment thread. Give me a second. Let me look that up. Really? <laughs> okay, so uh, ours reader VFRX wrote, first read through Jim's articles. Really seems targeted to techie prosumer people. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, and I'm not saying that sysadmins don't read this site, but this conversation section, and uh, they're referring you know, to the comments on that article, has rarely left me thinking I'm talking to adults or professionals. So this struck a chord with me and I had to sit down, like I had to put the phone down and sit down on a computer and apply to it because I had an answer for that. I'm like, I've actually given some serious thought to this. My own personal strictly techie blog is focused purely on IT professionals or seriously advanced prosumer types. But when writing for ours, I usually intend my writing to be, and this is a bulleted list, 
an appetizer for the technically minded or technically interested general audience, a dessert for senior IT people in or adjacent to the discipline I'm writing about, finally, most importantly, last bullet, a hearty meal for larval form or junior IT professionals. So, you know, that's that's my biggest thing is I want to reach the people who are where I was, you know, when I was in my teens and 20s and didn't quite know. I, I knew that, you know, I wanted to do computer stuff and that computer stuff was cool. And there were all these amazing potentials I kind of sensed out there, but I wasn't quite sure how to get there. Right. Those are the people that I'm absolutely the most interested in reaching. I do definitely want to reach, you know, the people who are just kind of interested and I do, you know, want to reach and make my content valuable for my peers. But it's those junior folks. I really, really want to be like, Oh, awesome. Jim wrote about this thing. And like that got me excited about it. And then I went and, you know, started getting my hands dirty with it. Now I can do a thing. That's, that's my big go-to. So inspiring others to, to create good in their own way. Inspiring them to become uh, more capable, given what I'm writing about, it's it's hard to say that, you know, particularly the technical stuff. I mean, you can talk about, you know, the good in some ethical sense I might be doing by, you know, pissing off Linus Torvalds when he gets too shirty. Um, but, you know, for the most part, if like if I'm writing about a VPN or, you know, some mesh networking or whatever, uh, it feels a little too highfalutin to say, you know, I'm, I'm helping people do good. I mean, maybe I am, but... Ultimately, really what I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to make people more capable, more self-determined. Well, maybe simply by giving them the tools, it gives them the option to do whatever they may with them. But without tools, you can't do very much, can you? Without tools and, you know, some some understanding of, you know, what you can do with them and how. So, like, I can show somebody what Nebula is, you know, the uh, Slack engineering's uh, VPN mesh product. I can tell somebody what it is and I can tell them how to set it up and I can, I can point out, you know, some of the like really cool general, very broad new concepts and capabilities it brings. But like, I don't want to tell somebody like exactly how to use it necessarily. I want people to know like what this thing is and like, you know, what, what its shape in the world looks like. And, you know, give them an ability to start getting their hands dirty with it and, you know, really start doing stuff. And I fully expect that, you know, lots of them will do things that I never thought of, you know, I mean, but that's, that's the whole point, right? That's the whole idea of leadership, isn't it? To inspire others. Leadership and, uh, you know, open source and Unix modular design. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. It's, it's always been interesting to me how, and I'm not sure which comes first, but we'll explore that here. Um, I'm always curious how the spirit of open source can be applied to far more than just software. And what I mean by which came first is like, are the people who are so passionate about open source, like you and I, are they interested because that's where their nature is and open source is just a really beautiful way to let that shine? Or is it that it inspires people to just look at things differently and to solve problems in a different way? I mean, it's going to be different for different people, right? I think I was just about the most fertile ground possible for the the seed of open source to reach because, you know, the, the concept of empowerment and the philosophical ideals and the pragmatism of some really impressive code, like all of that just all came together and every last bit of that is what I was looking for, right? I mean, 
open source was firing on all cylinders as far as like how to reach and impress a larval form Jim Salter. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that, uh, they're affected by the philosophical stuff, but they don't, they don't really want to think about it. They don't care about it personally. Maybe they should. They don't. It's not wrong. I mean, I feel like it's kind of a shame that everybody doesn't see that, but not everybody's going to see things the same way you do. And that's okay, right? So some people are just going to be like, well, you know, I don't really care about GPL or MIT or whatever. I just care that, you know, here's this awesome software and I want to use it. It's the best software for the use case. And that's okay too. It's like the pragmatic approach. And, you know, you'll have people with philosophical disagreements over, you know, whether the quote, correct, unquote, approach to open source is, you know, strong copy left or weak permissive. And uh, it's it's okay to have your own thoughts about, you know, which one is better for more things. But the most important thing is to remember that there is no one correct answer. The world actually needs both. You know, there's there's kind of this waterfall when it comes to licensing and just the pragmatic capability of tools, right? If you have a near universal need that can be fulfilled by software, that need will frequently be fulfilled first by proprietary software. But proprietary software has its hurdles, right? Like you have to pay money for it, and maybe you don't even care about the money, but maybe dealing with that is a pain in the butt. Like, you know, you end up, you're running a company, and now you're paying somebody 65 grand to be your license compliance officer. And, you know, it's annoying and getting in your way, and you want to be able to do without it. And you either then are motivated to write or to find and consume some open source product. And now you've done away with the roadblocks the proprietary put in your place, but you're still doing the thing you wanted to do. So there was still, the proprietary software didn't fulfill all the motivations to write open source software to do the same thing, right? So eventually somebody's going to do that. Once it becomes trivial enough, once it's a well enough understood concept, maybe once computing resources become more powerful, one way or another, eventually the task that proprietary software accomplished, somebody's going to do something open source. Now, let's say that the person who did it open source, they wrote it GPL. And that's fine and that's good. And one of the wonderful things about the GPL is that it prevents some really, you know, well-heeled organization from co-opting your code and turning it proprietary and then changing it once it's proprietary and choking out your original code base, right? Mm -hmm. That's good. But, but it still gets in some people's way. Somebody wants to be able to, you know, add that library into a proprietary project or a weak permissive license project or something that doesn't mix and match well with the GPL. To do that, they need a weak permissive license. So even though now you've got proprietary software that does this thing and you've got GPL software that does this thing, eventually, if it's a strong enough, universal enough need, somebody's going to be motivated to write and other people are going to be motivated to consume a weak permissive licensed version of the thing. So ultimately, everything is flowing downhill towards the most permissive, least restrictive licensed version of the thing that the absolute most of humanity can use. But there's reasons for proprietary licenses to make sense. There's obviously reasons for the GPL to make sense. And all my own code is licensed GPL v3. But yeah, I think you have to recognize and realize that whatever your personal thing you got going on is, all of these are valid approaches to a problem. They all have their value and their place somewhere, right? They do. 
They absolutely do. So, uh, Jim, if you wanted to put something out to the community, uh, like an ask of the community or something you'd like them to think about, that kind of thing, um, what would you like to send out there? It's frustrating to me to see the nonstop divisiveness and being jerks to one another. BSD fans say Linux is terrible and you shouldn't use Linux and you should come use BSD. And Linux fans say BSD is terrible and you shouldn't use that. And everything should, you know, be GPL or everything should be Linux. Uh, licensing fans argue about the licenses and, you know, so all this hate about that. Cut it out. You know, do your thing. Do a good thing. Uh, if you think the world needs a GPL version of a tool, then develop that thing or find that thing and consume it, uh, you know, add to its value, tell other people about it, um, file bug reports, submit patches, do positive stuff. Don't spend all your time saying, oh, well, BSD license versus version of thing is terrible or, you know, anything written on their cuddle is terrible or that. No, be positive. We got enough negative in the world. Be positive. And that's coming from a guy that calls himself a gadfly. <laughs> well put. And uh, yeah, we're hearing that often now from a bunch of different people. And uh, I certainly hope that the the hope for good there can overwhelm that negativity. Um, of course, I'm, I'm sort of a, an optimist, but... Yeah. You know, I, I do want to make one clarification, though. Please. Another thing that I see called for a lot is, you know, oh, well, you know, if we just didn't have all these desktop environments, you know, we got all these different things competing. That's what's keeping us down. No, no, no. That is the exact opposite of how open source works. Open source works because you can do your thing that satisfies your need and other people can contribute to it and make it better. And the best ideas rise to the top. Neither open source nor software development in general works by telling 50,000 people your job is now to code this one piece of software the way that I want you to code it. That's not how it works. Please stop. If you think your thing, whether it's you wrote it or you use it, you know, or whatever is great, then, you know, promote it in positive ways. Don't neg everybody else's thing. Don't say everybody else's thing needs to go away just promote your thing. Yeah. What I find most interesting about some open source projects and the tools that have risen to the top is that they tend not to rise to the top because someone has paid, you know, all sorts of marketing dollars for it. it they rise to the top because they're great, innovative ideas and because other people tend to believe in them. And what better reason for that stuff to float to the top? Yeah. You, you accrete mindshare. I mean, that's how things float to the top. Uh, especially in the open source world is, you know, they accrete mindshare, they accrete developer mindshare, they accrete user mindshare. Um, you know, they reach the attention of people who do promotion, whether it's, you know, professional promotion or circle of friends or whatever. But, you know, that that's that's how you get to the top. You get to the top by making something awesome. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining me today. I have learned certainly a lot in this conversation and uh, hopefully we get to chat together again soon. So, so thanks. Thanks for having me, Brent. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. <laughs>